Hey, this is the Sunny Day Radio Program. This is Scott Connor. And this is Lyle Wilson. We hope you enjoy the program today. back and uh, good afternoon scott hey good morning hey well, right. i guess it is afternoon here. yeah it's, it's it's shortly afternoon here so we should be uh, uh i think we're in the afternoon mode here yeah. but uh hey uh we uh we had a great interview last week with a guy named gary gentry and uh, we're going to uh, complete that interview today and uh, we've still got uh, two or three more songs that we're going to talk to him about yeah. and uh um man what a storyteller yeah, he's got a, a long history of, of greatness behind him, and uh, if you can, go ahead and bring him on up, and I'm going to go ahead and get started uh, talking about a few things that we're going to cover. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, we've, we've got, you know, we've got Gary with us, and one of the great things about this man is he understands how to put a song together, and if you guys that are writers out there last week, you remember, uh, one of the things that Gary mentioned was you want to start with an idea. You know, too often, I think, we... we, we as writers, and, and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong, wrong way to approach a song, and I'm, as a writer myself, I've, I've come after it from different directions, but uh, uh, to be honest with you, I, I can't tell you that I've sat down with an idea and went from the idea towards the song. I usually come up with a chord structure and possibly a, a chorus, or too often, to be honest with you, a verse, and then I search out the chorus. And uh, I don't know if that's wrong or right, but it's just the way that I've done as a writer. Uh, alternative chords and stuff to give me different ideas and different feels, capos, whatever. But uh, we've got one of the greatest living country music songwriters with us today, and I, I just can't stress what a cool treat this is for not only for Lyle and myself and those here at A1A, but if you guys have friends out there, that you know, get a hold of this link and share this link with people. Let people know about it. You know, uh, A1A is a is a trop rock radio station, but you know. The, the cool thing about this is the craft of songwriting really uh, is applicable to almost any genre. Uh, so however we write, you know, it's it's an important business to me. I think it's just uh, it's incredibly important. The words and, and the, the timing and the melody and putting all that together is just uh, amazing what Gary's been able to do. So, Gary, are you there? I am here and listening, and good afternoon to all our friends who listen to A1A, the Highway to Entertainment. <laughs> and I want to say hi to Scott. Hi. And uh, wish him luck with that. I love that duet with you and Tanya, man. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, so do a lot of people. Uh, I've got about four or 5,000 on my Facebook, and they... Boy, there was a lot of music people clicked in and said, we need more songs like this. <laughs> well, and we that, do. So well, that's what you promised. Well, me, you. me and you're going to yeah. sit down and uh, write one of them, hopefully, here in November. So. Hey, let's do it. Yeah, Any time. Cool. Any Yeah. Um, let's go ahead let's and get, get right the in. idea first. Yeah. The, yeah, we, we, you know, that's, talk about that a little bit, Gary. Okay, you've, you've, you've got an idea. How, how do you uh, sit down? You sit down with a, with a guitar usually, I assume, and uh, you, you, what do you do? Do you come down with the idea? Do you write down some key words? How do you, how do you approach your songs? Well, I've written like you do, and as I progressed and went on, Billy stressed the, uh, Billy Sherrill, a yeah. record producer icon, he, uh, he stressed the importance of the unique idea. And uh, so one day I walked in, and, and, and I started thinking that way. He changed my, my way. I used to write with a guitar in my hand, get the chorus going, and then build little stories, which we call verses, yeah. around that powerful chorus, yeah. the repetitive part of your song. Yeah. And, and one day I walked in, he said... Uh, he said, Gary, I'm getting ready to do an album on, uh, uh, getting ready to do a couple of cuts on, on George and, uh, Ray Charles. And I thought, oh my goodness, I doubt what I wouldn't give for a Ray Charles cut. <laughs> I'd had George cut, loved George to death, but I wanted that Ray Charles cut so bad. I went home and tried every formula for songwriting 
you can think of, and here, this is encouraging young riders and, and new riders out there because you never know what, what's going to happen next. I had just about given up. For a week, I racked my brains, I drank, I went, tried it sober, I tried everything. And all of a sudden, when I gave up on the, on that idea for Ray and George, I turned on Nashville Now, Ralph Emery's night show, and there was Ronnie Millsap. And I thought, damn, there's another blind great, a legend. <laughs> and I thought, and Ronnie got on there, and he said, people, I'm going to tell you, I had a devil of a time driving to work tonight. Wow. Well, everybody cracked up the audience because they all love Ronnie, but they knew he was lying and kidding because he's blind. And I thought, now, wait a minute. If Ronnie Millsap will make fun of his own handicap, I wonder if Ray would. So I sit down there, and, of course, two guys that, that see each other cheating or whatever are going to say, now, I didn't see you, and I didn't see you, and we didn't see a thing. Yeah. I thought that that would if they caught each other cheating on their wives <laughs> in a bar. That's what they would say. Not that I know anything about cheating or all wild or get me here. I don't know. But uh, I thought, yeah, that's what they would say. So the next morning, I walked in. Billy was pacing around, drinking coffee, and I said, "I got an idea." And I said, uh, "We didn't see a thing." Ray and George. I said, uh, Ray, I didn't see you. George, I didn't see you. And we didn't see a thing. Billy said, my God, where'd you get that? And I told him about Ronnie Millsap. And he said, I'll tell you what, write it. I went home, and of course, once you get the idea and you get your little course going, then I gave them their parts. And, uh, uh, I went back that afternoon. I said, here it is. He said, my God, Ray's coming in in the morning. He said, Possum will love it. I don't know about Ray. And I thought, oh, my IRS just gave me another call. I need this cut so bad. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I quit messing up and screwed it up, and didn't, my account really came down on So, uh here came Ray and his lead, his guide, the next morning. He brought him to the door, and I went up and introduced myself. And, oh, he's just beautiful, humble soul. I mean, you couldn't help but love Ray Charles. And and uh, they took him into the conference table at CBS. And Billy said, now, Ray, I want you to hear this to you and George. He said, I know... Uh, uh, you and Junior are doing old cats like us, and you and Willie are doing the uh, uh, Spanish Angel, you know, and all that. I said, this is a, a different twist. And uh, George was there. So he sat down at the conference table, and it was just me and the guitar. And I'd do my, <laughs> I'd do my best George Jones imitation. Then I'd do my best Ray Charles. <laughs> And, uh, cause that's the way Ray talked. I love to hear him talk. So, uh, Ray sat there and after one verse of it, he slapped the table with his hands and said, I love it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, good. Oh, hallelujah. We're on. And George did too and they shook hands on it and left. So that, that was, but that unique idea, that's what I was hunting for. And I thought, okay, Ray's blind. Ronnie Millsap's blind. How many great blind musicians and, and singers have I heard? Millions of them. And I thought, why would he be sensitive about his handicap? And Billy agreed. I don't think he will be. And he wasn't. No. So it's that unique idea. And that thing, oh, my goodness. Ray Charles is big all over the world. Yeah. And I forget what it was to in Billboard ten or twelve or whatever. But so, it made so Gary, you were uh, you were. Uh, I, I just I can't reiterate this enough. We talked about this lightly last week. You're writing these songs and you're going right to the source, man. I mean, I can't stress how cool that is. You know, I uh, we write a song. I I I've got a, a couple guys I write with down around Nashville. 
We get it done. First thing we've got to do is we've got to take it to the studio and spend another twelve, fourteen hundred dollars on it just to get it ready to I pitch. Know. And then, and then we've got to talk to publishing. That's going to take <laughs> all the money, and uh, you know it's a uh, it's a problem. So you were taking it right to the source. Well, I was very fortunate through Carmel Taylor, the best songwriting instructor I probably ever had. He, uh, he put me with Billy Sherrill. And, uh, Billy had the power. He was all powerful. He had all these artists, uh, dancing to his music. Yeah. And, uh, Billy was also my publisher. He and Al Gallico had a company called Al G Music, and I wrote for Al G. So Billy would give me his biggest ears. Because we were talking split money here. Yeah. It was about money. A writer splits with his publisher. If there are two writers, then you and your other writer split 25-25, and the publisher still gets half. Yeah. So I was writing for the man who had an incentive to listen to me because he knew I could write. Yeah, and you had a track And that I'd paid my dues. Yeah. And he thought, man, if I cut this song, the money stays here. And on that George and that Ray Charles thing, we made a ton of money. It came in from places all over the world. Wow! How did you? How did how did you? How did you get Chet Atkins involved in that uh, project? Chet every year does some. Oh, Billy was going to the studio that morning. He grinned. He said, "What Chet Atkins going to be out here?" Well, I said, I can't. He said, well, actually, no, Chet. He likes to get his name on something every year, so he keeps getting that um, musician award. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and there's Chet on the front end, too. That little picking thing he does. And, and why not? Chet was a, uh, was a wise, brilliant man and a great musician, but more so, he was super intelligent. I played golf with him one time, hmm. and, uh, uh, we were up in East Tennessee, not far apart from him right now. And, uh, uh, Cy Rosenberg, my manager, said, Chet, you get any good advice to lay on a, a rookie, an upcomer? And Chet looked at me and he said, Well, be careful where you aim in life, boy. Because <laughs> sooner or later you'll get there. You know, a lot of people were down on Chet Atkins back in the about sixty seven, sixty eight, because he's the guy that brought the big budget to the uh, to the process of recording. He's the guy that brought the big strings to country music and classed it up quite a bit. And uh, a lot of more traditional guys uh, were fighting that quite a bit. Do you remember any of that? I do remember that. Billy Sherrill caught the devil too. Uh, in Willie Nelson's biography, he talks about Billy. He said, we were doing fine. He said, little did we know warlord Billy Sherrill was over the horizon to bring country to the cosmopolitan genre. Cosmopolitan. He gave Billy the credit for it. And he made fun of his wry sense of humor and all that in Willie's bio. But he, he called him the warlord that brought the strings. And he was a combination of Billy and of Chet, and then of course Owen Bradley in the early days weren't show New York. We're more than a bunch of hillbillies down here. We can make <laughs> great pop records. Yeah. And he and look what he and Patsy did. Oh my God, Owen Bradley and uh, Patsy Klein, Brenda Lee, Kitty Wells, Loretta Lynn. Yeah. Owen Bradley uh, brought it to life. He he's the reason Nashville became Music City. And then he and Billy were dear friends. One time, Billy, somebody asked the Cheryl, said, who are the greatest producers in Nashville? And Billy said, well, there's Owen Bradley, then there's the rest of us. <laughs> wow. Well, do you, where do you see, you know, you and I talked privately about the uh, the moment when, when everything shifted for... Um, you know your generation even though you were a younger part of that generation you were a, a young version of the generation that you represented but you and I've talked privately about the early 80s when everything shifted and uh we we shifted again in uh the late 
actually early 90s, and then here we are wherever we're at now, and there's all kinds of opinions. But do you, what's your opinion? Do you think, uh, I, I personally don't believe that music can go backwards. I think it can, can reference itself a little bit, but I don't see music ever going back. Um, I don't see rock ever going back. I just think uh, music just continues to move. And then we, all we can do is look back on, on these moments, these great moments in time like what you gave us as far as writing great songs. What, what do you think? I mean, do you think we're headed anywhere good right now? Well, Max Barnes and I talked, Max D. Barnes and I talked about this out in front of Irving Alamo Music one day. He said, Jerry, they've always told me in this town, keep writing what you write, it'll come back around to you. Because we've seen so many changes in the industry. Well, I've had several important disc jockeys like yourself talk to me through the years, Lyle. And they tend to believe it will not come back. That special interest has killed it. Then, of course, when Garth came along and showed this town that he could make millions, millions of dollars. You follow the money trail. Right. And and when you see the money they generate out of the little handful of artists that they have today, it, how do you buy that away? How do you take that away? I remember when George Jones would have a new album out and it would sell 250,000 copies and people running up and down Music Row screaming, what a hit, what a hit. Yeah. Today, if a kid doesn't sell a million on his first out, he's just about history. Wow. What do you think about... He's history. Uh, why, why do you think we don't have, uh, like, we have classic rock stations. We've been listening to the same... 15 different artists in classic rock for the last 30 years now, but we don't seem to have uh, good traction taking so, you know songs like yours and having them on classic country radio. That just doesn't seem to bite. You know, you, I, I, I'm like you. I travel around the country and different cities, and, and I always try to hone in on whatever local radio is, uh, but they don't seem to uh, consistently pursue classic country, and I for the life of me, man, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, Nashville is trying to kill traditional country music. They have been for the last 30 years and done a pretty good job of it. Yeah. And uh, the only thing, you're controlled out of Washington, D.C. by uh, Clear Channel. They okay the new records coming out down the pike. And and the new records that come out of Nashville now I have to get approval by Clear Channel. Or they call it something else. It's not Clear Channel now. What is it? Well, we've got XM. We've got uh, iHeartRadio. We've got well, that's XM. They have a freedom that that regular AM FM doesn't have. Yeah, right. Uh, it's it's controlled by Clear Channel, and they don't want jocks to have personalities anymore. They don't want you to play country music. What I thank God for is Australia, England, Ireland, Germany, uh, Canada, Canada, where they're not controlled by Clear Channel because they, my stuff still plays on on classics. And this year, my royalties have been higher than they've been in five or ten years. Wow, that's good. That's good, yeah. Yeah, because they refuse to be controlled. We are controlled, and it really teased me off <laughs> yeah. that so. that uh, that we can't go back. I mean, you take like Scott's record; it should be way on up there. Uh, why? Because Clear Channel uh, will try to squash anything traditional or meaningful or anything that uh, that we used to count most important to the music and to the biz. Um, you have to be careful now, and you're choosing your subjects on a unique idea. It can't be depressing, or it can't be drunk, or it can't be... You know, they had police turn in a report, and of course the liberals used this highly when they said, liberal police, uh, I mean, the, the police said that when they go to a home of domestic violence, there's usually a ballad or something country playing in the background, Oh. They played that to death. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that they use to um, to squash uh, traditional country. I don't think we'll ever hear the great, great 
Merle Haggard songs, the great lefties, and, the, and uh, some of the stuff we used to buck on, some of the great stuff we used to hear, unless it's bluegrass, that's where they're going now, is bluegrass. And they're hiding under that umbrella instead of the country genre, because country powers that be will not let it survive. Hmm. Wow. As far as you're right... They have wrung the country from out of country music. So when you... And when you, do, today, do you, I'm sorry. I, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, Gary, I mean, when you're writing, are you trying to reach into this current market? Or when you write, do you just go ahead and just go with it and go with what you know works? Or are you trying well, to work yourself into this new market? I'm working on a novel right now. It's more fun. I went back to school and <laughs> and took a literary course and, and aced it, and they told me they'd kick my butt if I didn't write a book, so I'm working on that. Cool. All right. Cool. And uh, uh, I, I love freedom. Let me tell you what happened in the late 80s. It showed me where the direction this thing was going. Martha Sharp was an assistant to Jimmy Bowen at Electra Records. I was on Electra. And she said, well, Gary, if you don't have a publisher, would you like to write for us? And I said, that's a possibility. Uh, Billy and I had split up. He got mad when I went to Cy Rosenberg, so we split up. We got back together later. Um, it was financially behooving for us to get back together. <laughs> yeah. But she took me to a door, and she said, now let me show you our new writing room. Well, she opened a door. And a bunch of kids were sitting in these little cubicles, and they looked like zombies staring at each other. And there were a few pictures on the wall, but it was so <laughs> hot that food, it scared me to death. And I said, Martha, what, what is it? She said, shh, this is our writing room. <laughs> I said, Martha, I never wrote in a writing room. Well, this is the way that we're doing it now, this way. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times we give our uh, students, students, yeah. um, we give our students the uh, subject to write about. I thought, oh, my God, is this what it's come to? <laughs> I said, Martha, Pablo Picasso used to paint art while having sex with three women. He didn't sit in a cubicle. You don't walk in there and tell him, Pablo, here is a paint by number set. We want you to paint the exact colors we tell you to. Oh, and don't think this picture. Pick the one we give you. Yeah. Wow. I thought it made me want to throw up. Yeah, I've been in that room. It, had, it just had a piano and a guitar in it. I've been in that room. I know what you're talking about. Now, a lot of people have survived it, and a lot of kids came to town and didn't know any better and thought it had always been that way. Well, it hasn't. No. Billy Sherrill said, my writers used to come in here with long hair, a bag of pot, and a guitar. <laughs> now they come in here, they're bald-headed, they wear earrings, and bring a lawyer with them. <laughs> and probably have a man bun. <laughs> yeah, a man bun. Yeah. <laughs> so... We're going to go ahead and start. Uh, why don't we go and check out We Didn't See a Thing real quick, Lyle. And can you just hang on for just a few minutes, Gary, and then we'll uh, we'll get right back. But I want the people to hear We Didn't See a Thing. Okay. Please do. Thank you. And yeah, thank you, everybody yeah, out there at hey, A1A. Yeah, you stay right there, and we're going to come right back to you. Is that okay? All right. We'll talk to you offline here, yeah. right, Gary. Just okay. hang tight. Girlfriend, drinking beer and a dancing to that western swing. And I didn't see you kiss her and leave that bar room with her. No, I didn't see you. And I didn't see you. And, and we didn't, didn't see a thing. George, I know I didn't hear you tell that blonde that you weren't married. No. <laughs> I know I didn't see you hiding your wedding ring either, did I? And I know I couldn't have heard you call your wife and tell her that you were working. No, no, I didn't see you. I didn't see you. And we didn't see a thing. We've got to stick together. 
Levi's store is straight. Now don't forget Ray, I was down in Atlanta. Sure you were, and I was working late. Yeah, you know it's always a good to see you. Charles, it's good to see you too. Uh, but I didn't see you. I didn't see you. And I didn't see a thing. A hundred bucks you owe me. I don't know what you're talking well, about. I'm sure George. you recall our bet on last night's a football no, game. No, I don't, but you know if I had a CD, I certainly would have paid you, but I didn't see you. Didn't see you, but it's We've got to stick together, keep our story straight. Don't forget, I was down in Atlanta. And don't you forget, I was working late. Well, you know it's always a good to see you. All right, that was George Jones, Ray Charles, featuring uh, um, Chet Atkins here on uh, Radio A1A, and uh, the song was written by uh, uh, Gary. And I'll tell you what, man, I, that is uh, that's a great song. It's, it's a short song. It's only like two minutes, and you say it was played to death. They was played to death. The airplay on that was phenomenal. And again, all over the world. You riders got to know now that your riding doesn't just come from the U.S. It comes from Canada, England, Australia. When you get a Johnny Cash or a, a, a Jason Aldean or, a, or whatever cut out there, your, your checks will come from all over the world. Don't, don't just think it's uh, the U.S. And and that's what happened. Ray was big all over the world, and everybody was hungry for anything he recorded. Wow. Have, have you picked up any soundtrack uh, work as far as your music being used in soundtracks, Gary? Uh, Shirley Hutchins is my partner. She's a wonderful woman. She's got 40 years' experience in this business. She is my uh, administrator for my publishing company, and she took some of my songs recently. And had 1959 soundtrack cut and drinking and driving. They did it bluegrass. Breaker Bay, this is hard to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, well, how clever is that? And that was her idea, not mine. I've, I've, I've been locked into a book here recently. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of that going on and happening. And these kids out here writing, new rookies writing, uh, you never know where your song's going to go. Once you copyright it and it's out there, they can grab it up and use it for movies or whatever. And guess what? They have to pay you. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, you you never know where your music's going to go. Copyright it, get your publishing work behind you, then pray. <laughs> well, let's and talk great things happen. Let's talk about the 1959 single because that, uh, okay. you know, I think Lyle's just mentioned while we were off air that uh, he's been listening to it since last week pretty much nonstop. Uh, talk about that song, Gary. How did you how did you write it? Where where was your mind at when you put it put the piece together? Okay, it was I was in the bathtub. It was that <laughs> night. It was fall of the year, just like right now. We're getting ready to come through fall, and Indiana is gorgeous in the fall. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I wanted to go for nostalgia. And nobody had a more stout nostalgic voice. Carefree highway seems to slip away. Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. So I thought, man, I would love to hear him do. I had him in mind. And it was fall of the year. And that 59 Cadillac that we saw pull in the driveway that day just stirred the whole I miss the fifties. I grew up in a beautiful small town in in uh, East Tennessee, and it took me back home. And I thought every year in fall, I think of home, my hometown. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought everybody's got to feel a little nostalgic in the fall. And I went for nostalgia. So that '59 Cadillac that me and the boys saw that day had stirred that emotion. That that. Oh man, what a great decade! The fifties, housing boom was on. Uh, Korean War got finally got over, and here came all the boys home from World War Two and Korea War. Housing boom was on. The baby boom was on, and 
you could afford things then. If a man or woman was willing to work, they could have anything they wanted in those days, as long as their credit was good. Yeah. And it was nineteen. It was the fifties altogether. And Robert, um, oh, what is his last name? The critic, and for years he did Robert Orman. Orman, yeah. Mm-hmm. He wrote an, a, a review on that song, and he said, "I love." And he, he very rarely said anything great about uh, songs, but he said, "I love that song, 1959." Because it marks the end of one of the greatest decades in American history. And I thought, thank you, Robert Orman. <laughs> and he said, it is nostalgic and has strings to take you even deeper into the emotion. I thought, God bless you, man. <laughs> thank you. And so that's what I wanted to go for, and I got it. And I have to thank Nora Wilson. Uh, and Carmel Taylor for their support of that song. When they heard it, it got them too, because it was fall of the year, and and I think everybody gets a little little emotional this time of year. It's the end of another year coming to an end. The long hot summer's over, little nip in the air, and uh, uh, that was 1959. And I just knew when I got it done, I thought, boy, this is gonna blow Carmel away. And I thought, that's him, because he, he remembers that era well. And the next morning, I sang it for him, and he drug me right over to Nara Wilson. And we did it. And, of course, I wanted Gordon Lightfoot to do it, because I'd just left the Navy a few years earlier. And Gordon Lightfoot was blaring out of every jukebox in Norfolk, Virginia, the strip, the long military strip there where guys drank. Yeah. Shot food and all that sort of thing. I thought, yeah. And I had a girlfriend. I was living with a girlfriend at the time, and she loved Gordon Lightfoot and played him until I knew his songs backwards. And uh, it didn't happen that way. You find in Nashville, you've got a lot of rock musicians, a lot of pop musicians, a lot of pop producers who really would rather be there, but they're in Nashville because that they found a home. They found a home there. Billy Sherrill did not want to be a country producer. He wanted to produce pop. He had spent two years in New York City with Phil Spector. Mm. And he had, that was the wall and of he, sound. So do you think Billy... The wall did, of sound, yeah. Phil. It yeah. was him. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. And, uh, um, of course, we know what happened later on. Oh, yeah. Lord, it's weird. But uh, <laughs> Billy... One time, Lacey Dalton came in to record, and I just love that little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he changed her name to Lacey Dalton. Her real name was, I forget, something else. But anyway, he had a, uh, a Remington statue in his office of the Dalton gang. And he, he named her Lacey because that was country, and Dalton after the Remington statue someone had presented it. Hmm. Lacey Dalton. And one day, Lacey's in the studio, and Billy said, uh, said, Lacey, he hit the speaker. He said, Lacey, I, I was there. He said, I want you to quit trying to sing this song. Sell me this song. Don't sing it to me. You're a stylist. You're not a singer. Now, Jamie Fricky, Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, they're singers. You are a stylist. Now, give me what we bought you for. Well, she got mad, and she cried, and I held her hand, and she went back in there, and she nailed it. Mama, why do I fall for those crazy blue eyes? And uh, and she nailed it, and and she had her 15 minutes. Well, she also and, had the uh, song, uh, God Bless the Boys That Make the Noise on, was it 15th Avenue? On 16th, 16th Avenue, yeah. yes, yeah. sir. Tom Schaller wrote a killer in that song. He yeah. went for Nostalgia. And he went for the life of the musician, and he nailed it. Boy, yeah. what a song! Good one, yeah. Oh, he nailed it, and uh, and she did too. And um, it it made history. I mean, it went down as one of the one of the songwriters' favorite songs. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you'll find most of our musicians wanted to be rock. They're not. They're they, they're they're in country. 
Bobby Bear always hired rock bands. He had one of the greatest rock guitar, lead guitar players in the band I ever heard, but of course he was limited to do country. Right. I wanted to be folk because I really love Bob Dylan, James Taylor. I don't love his politics. No. I love his, <laughs> but I love his music. Uh, James Taylor, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, these guys. That's who I wanted to be. I knew I could never be a George Jones. There is no other George Jones. He'd already nailed that market. I wanted to be folk. I love Bob Dylan. Lay Lady Lay is still one of my favorite melodies of all time. Yes. One of the eeriest songs I've ever heard. And yeah. all of that leaked in for 1959. All of that, that love and, and, and for those guys' music and everything leaked into 1959. I wanted a nostalgic piece. And I've heard guys that I don't even know call that one of the greatest songs ever written. I was just very fortunate to have so much influence. And I tell young writers today, listen to all genres. You don't know where your music's going to go. Um, big pop songs have come out of country writers, you know. Oh, yeah. You never know what what's going to happen. I will tell young writers out there today a little lesson Carmel Taylor gave me when I hit town, and I've never forgotten it. Carmel would wake up hungover about noon every day, and he'd sit on the edge of the bed in his boxer shorts, and we'd write, and he said, Jerry, and I'll try and talk like him. He said, Jerry, out there in Hollywood... They got two hours to make a movie in. You ain't got but three and a half, four minutes, son. So you ain't got room for no throwaway lines. You know, you got to be a master at editing and get your story, your whole movie made in three and a half to four minutes. And it can't sound rushed. It can't sound pushed. And when that movie is clear, the listener ought to be able to ride home from work and that movie unfold right before them through the windshield. He said, I'll tell you another thing. When that movie, when that thing is right, write it for sixth grade reading level. And he said, because if you use any big words in it, they're going to throw it out the window. Nobody's going to the dictionary to listen to one of your songs. He said, when that movie's done, it ought to be as clear as country spring water, son. Hmm. What a beautiful lesson in songwriting. Wow. Thank you, Carmel. Rest in peace. Yeah, I've had my hand slapped several times for uh, producers, you know, early on telling me not to use any junk words, you know, the, the little crossover words that get you into the next line, just junk words that aren't necessary to tell the story with. I always, early on... You I'd, don't have room for them. You don't. You don't yeah. have room. I was always concerned about rhythmic value, you know, like, okay, I need I need, <laughs> I need, a word with a beat, and maybe I didn't need that word at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, I still make those mistakes, of course, but uh, it's good to have people slap my hand every now and again and say, what are you thinking, dummy? You know, get back in the game here. Exactly. But uh, I want to go ahead, if it's all right with you, Lyle, we'll go ahead and play 1959. And then we'll come back with you, Gary, one more time. And just um, I'd like you to just, uh, you know, we've got an opportunity. And like I say, the, the cool thing about this program um, is this this show will get played over and over. And then there'll be a link and people can hear it as many times and share it with as many people as they want. So um, what you say carries an awful lot of weight, not just with me and Lyle, but I think a lot of people out there. So uh we're going to listen well, to, you know. I was fortunate enough, brother, to have the sense to know that I was sitting there with greatness. Yeah. yeah. I'm not great. These guys were. And they saw a, a little seed, mustard seed of hope in me and thought, well, we'll just lay it on this kid. And how blessed I was to be around Billy Sherrill, Carmel Taylor, Narl Wilson, uh, Curly Putman, Bobby Braddock, all the, uh, Harlan Howard, all yeah. those Max D. Barnes and on, no, no. God bless them all. Rest in peace, fella. 
I've got a friend of mine. I've got a friend of mine named Daryl Clanton that actually uh, uh, worked for Pete Drake, and Pete Drake plays on this uh, 1959. Oh, he did. He and Billy were dear friends, and Pete Drake was a uh, Pete Drake was a great producer himself. You know. Yes. And yeah. he produced a lot of acts. He used to have, what was that kid's name? It was he had a lot of hits. Uh, oh, I can't even think of his name now. But Pete Drake, you know, he invented the talking steel guitar. Sure. And oh. Pete Drake, did you ever hear him do steel and do it like Bill Anderson, the words? You can hear them leak through on the uh, steel guitar. Did you ever hear that? I didn't. I did, yeah, I was going to say, I, I've never heard of oh, that. Oh, it was a hit when I was just a child. I was a kid. And uh, all Pete and, yeah, Pete and Billy were, they were very tight. Well, we're going to jump into this song real quick, and then... You think about what you'd like to share for these last few minutes because people care about what you've got to say. All okay. right, I'll tell them, and I care about them, too. All right, we'll be you, back. You hang on. Here's uh, John Anderson, 1959, written by Bill Gentry. Cigarettes were a quarter then Bobby socks and jeans were in Elvis Sang songs that we loved so And the most important thing to us Was keeping gas in my old truck So I could take us to the driving show Then graduation finally came Uncle Sam called me away you married someone else while I was gone But I've kept your letter all these years And I can't help but shed a tear When I read the words you wrote me years ago Baby, I'm yours I love you all Stand by you until the end of time Remember all of the good things That we shared together Sign, Love Betty 1959 I never will forget the day When you and I went all the way I was the first for you And you for me I've still got the truck that we loved in It takes me back there now and then Back to 59 in my memory That is 1959, sung by John Anderson and written by uh, Gary Gentry right here on Radio A1A. It's a music for your road to paradise there. And, um, Gary, that's uh, that's an incredible song, man. I was telling you offline there, uh, you know, I listened to that song last week, and I probably listened to that particular song 15 times uh, since last oh. week when we talked to you. But it, but, it, but it sparked me to listen to some other John Anderson hits. And, uh, and John just had a bunch of smash hits, uh, uh, you know, that was uh, – uh, Really, uh, um, well-written songs by, uh, you know, other, other songwriters, uh, like yourself. And, uh, um. Oh, Bobby Braddock did Would You Catch a Fallen Star? That's one of my favorite songs, John. That's yeah, a did. great song. Great song, for sure. Yeah. I love that song. Bobby knew that character well. That doggone Bobby Braddock can write a smash. I'm here to you. Oh. And, uh, uh, and then Lionel Delmore, who is, uh, a son of the Del, a grandson of the Delmore brothers. 
he and John wrote a lot of hits together. Swing in. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, Lionel was a great writer. He turned over a tracker at home and he killed it. Oh. Uh, I hated to hear that. That's crushed me. I mean, he's in the prime. And he and John wrote a lot of hit songs together. So you were into your, yourself, Gary. You were more of a folk guy as far as what you listened to. Uh, obviously, Dylan. Um, when you mentioned uh, Gordon Lightfoot last week, um, what I did, I, I went and downloaded and bought a handful of songs. I bought Don Quixote. I bought, obviously, Carefree Highway, uh, Time in a Bottle, you know, the Edmund Fitzgerald, and a couple of others. Um, and I've been listening oh, to the it. Edmund Fitzgerald still gives me chills. You know, but I was wondering. I mean, I'm trying to put myself where you're at because, you know, in my mind, I see... When I think about you, I, I see greatness. You've touched and been part of greatness. And so when you say, well, this is what I was listening to at the time, you know, I'm looking towards that energy, seeing if it can be, <laughs> if there's any left, you know. And uh, I, uh, what is it? What is it about, let's talk about Gordon Lightfoot for just a minute. How does that, how does that align with you? I mean, his, uh, uh, sounds to me like kind of an open chord structure most of the time much like well all the especially the traditional countries from the 70s that you were involved in what what is it what was it was it his, his lyrics what is was it his sound he had a nice I warm think it sound was, i think it was the believability he was a, he had the most believable voice yeah when he sang uh uh in the early morning rain yeah laying there drunk and cold as i could be lines like that yeah and uh, being in in the Navy, being in Norfolk, Virginia, at that time when he was all oh, he was everything he did hit. Uh, this is before it, this girl. Yeah, this is in uh, the early seventies, correct? Yeah, this is sundown, and and it poured out of every honky tonk. There were probably forty of them on that strip in North Norfolk, Virginia. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not the only one that loves Gordon Lightfoot's music. Yeah. Evidently, millions there are putting sticking quarters in the jukebox and feeding it right. And that's all I heard was Gordon Lightfoot, and uh, uh, it was it was believable. And his melodies were a little different than country. Like I said, I knew I could never be a Buck Owens who I loved dearly. I loved uh, George Jones since I was twelve years old. I, I felt folk because I had been around the world and had known so many different types of people. That I wasn't just all country. I had friends that were New York Italians. I had, you know, yeah. Uh, I had friends in Italy that that would laugh at me when I'd speak Italian to them, thinking, "Oh, this dumb, he'll do it." But he <laughs> loves us so probably. And Al Gallico and I, when we met, and he flew down from the office. We drove them all crazy. We would talk in Italian. Wow. Yeah, and we go off and, and they look like what are those idiots talking? <laughs> and there was a love between me and Al Gallico that I dare I dare say he didn't share with too many writers, and he helped me big time. Uh, Al was a businessman. He'd go to Vegas and drop a million dollars, not think anything about it. But if you owe him fifteen cents, you better pay it to him. <laughs> he was one of those guys, you know. Yeah. He was a tiger. I'd been around those kind of guys all my life, and I like it. And we'd go to Mario's in Nashville and eat the best Italian food. We didn't enter the front door. We'd go in the back door so he could test everything and taste it before we ordered it. Wow. wow. So Jocko was a powerful man. So when you came and to Nashville, I what, being around him and the stories. what were you hearing? You did you come to Nashville? Obviously, you came. I, we 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 heard last week as you kind of got your opportunities. But did you come with an idea in mind that you were going to change the sound, or were you, were you going to try to just jump out there into the traffic and just ride with it? What what was your what was your approach? You know, you're a young guy. You, I love Johnny Paycheck. I heard him do A Eleven and Jukebox Charlie, and to me, writing country was stepping down. It was easier than writing folk. Yeah. Because in folk, you had to give one of the pictures that make people think. Yeah. And I, when I wrote for, like, uh, uh, Paycheck, I wrote Drinking and Driving. I'll tell you about pitching the song in the restroom. Yes. I wrote that coming across. Those were practice songs for me. I wanted the ultimate folk song. Yeah. And, and these were like little stepping stones. And I'll tell you this. 
uh, young writers and everybody out there listening, don't make songs important. They're not. They should be fun. If they're work to write, they'll be work to listen to. Yeah. Make your song fun. You don't know. It may be a practice song that when you get through with it, you ain't even going to play Aunt Edna. No. And she loves you. You just write. You never know when the magic will appear. And God will look at you and say, well done, kid. You ain't going to leave me alone with your prayer and all that stuff. So here, take this song. I'll do this. <laughs> it comes. It happens magically like that. And I would love to lay on all new and young writers something that the late, great Red Savine told me. Uh, and, and, I, I, and I want you to think about this, young writers. I was in, I was 22 years old in Hawaii in the military and in a little band. And the, back then the Hee Haw Axe came over. Red didn't even have Teddy Bear then yet. Uh, he was the greatest recitation artist I had ever heard. And he came over there and I bugged him to death because he was Nashville. And there I was stuck in Hawaii and, uh, knew four chords on a guitar and thought I was Chad Atkins. <laughs> and I said, and I was playing for him, and he'd keep saying, Now turn that thing down, son. Turn the volume down. I can't go out there and get a standing ovation with you trying to be Dwayne Eddie. <laughs> so I kept bugging him with little songs I'd written. And finally, out of a Jackson Place, he rolled his eyes the last night he appeared at the Chiefs Club in Hawaii. He said, Son, do you believe? He, I said, what do you think, Mr. Brian? I gave you that tape last night. What do, you, what do you think about that song? He said, well, it doesn't matter what I think. What do you think? Do you believe you have the talent to write songs? I looked around and I thought, yeah. Yeah, I do, because I ain't going to quit. He said, okay, there you are. He said, let me ask you this. Do you believe in God? I said, yeah. Yeah, I do. Well, if you believe in God, and you believe you have the talent, then you go to Nashville, and you knock on doors, and 90% of them will slam in your face. But one door will open to you, and that's all you need, son. The late, great Red Survive. Wow. I wrote a tribute to him called The Caller. It's in a trucking album I did. Yep, I've heard it. It's, it's the caller. It never charted. It's been sold in TA truck stops and everything all over in Gary Country trucking songs. But, I, that was Red Sabah. And I do, I, do you know how many times I've replayed that conversation in my mind through the years? <laughs> I when I would get down and discouraged, I thought, yeah, I believe in God. And yeah, I believe I can write songs. So I'm going to do it. So I would give advice, that advice to any young writer out there sitting in Peru, Indiana, Wabash, Indiana, Logan, Columbus, Franklin, where are you at? You can do it if you want to, because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You better believe it. You better buy it. You better put it on your mirror on tape, because you can. There. There's my sermon for today. <laughs> Amen. Amen, brother. Gary, thank you for Amen. coming on this show, man. It This is... Uh... Thank important, you. Important stuff here. Give every one of them Hoosiers my love up there and all over the world. Thank you for yes, sir. Uh, helping me. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll talk to you soon. I think we're going to close out the show here maybe with uh, some Johnny Paycheck uh, drinking and driving. <laughs> A subject I knew too well about back in the day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Five dollars worth of regular Three dollars worth of wine Hand me a road map Show me the state line I got the booze on my bumper I gotta leave them behind Yeah, I gotta Bought a ticket for Texas She left me late last night I got a ticket this morning 
for a DUI. Ten for ten dollars. It's my very last dime. I'm gonna take it and drink that woman, honey, right out of my mind. Breaker, breaker, this is heartache. Hear me loud and clear. Got a memory on my tailgate. No smokies on my rear. Gentry right here on Radio A1A, and uh, man, what an interesting guy. Yeah, he's uh, the depth of what he's got. You know, I think to me, the thing that, that comes back, and I've, I've heard it my whole life, and I've, I've actually, and not, not to insert myself into this thing, but I've uh, the one thing that, that he mentioned that I, I believe in strongly is you, you bring something good, you surround yourself with greatness, and that's with your players, your, if you're using a producer, your engineer, you know, you got to get it where it's just a, a perfect setting, and uh, Gary understood that. And he, you know, he was surrounded by some of the greatest American lyricists alive. It was it was a very very cool moment in in American history for for music. And uh, that man, he was there. And if you think about it, he was he was probably the youngster of the group. Oh yeah. You know, so he was there, and and just my God, imagine walking into a room. And laying a song out for George Jones. And, uh, well, I noticed, I noticed last week, too, when he was telling the stories about him working in the liquor store, he put himself in a position where he would run into folks like that. Sure. You know, that yeah. uh, George Jones would come into that liquor store yeah. or, you know, yeah. the other gentleman that was a big record producer. Uh, so you build a rapport with those people as you they do. Come, come and go. go. You do. You, you can't do that nowadays. You can't, you can't go up to somebody and just say, hey, listen to my song. No, you can't. And I... I you know, I'm guilty of uh, being a, a little gurmy myself. I have, uh, when I've been in Nashville, and I don't do it as much anymore because, you know, it's already been there, done that thing. But I, I have taken a lot of my walks and a lot of my my evening runs and stuff when I go out by myself, and and I'll go down those streets where these guys walked, and I'll look at some of those old buildings where they were working, and uh, the the RCA building where I've actually done quite a bit of business there, right on Music Row. But I stand there in silence and. And allow those ghosts to to kind of talk back, hoping they're going to say something cool. They never have. Hank Williams. Yeah, <laughs> Hank, Hank Williams might show up. He did not show up for me. <laughs> you got to have one of those uh, one of them their seances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not going to happen. But uh, anyway, thank you guys for listening to the show. Or how close? How much time we have? We got. Uh, we're done, buddy. Okay, let's take a fork in us. <laughs> well, thank you guys for for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, you guys take care. All right, God bless y'all. Take care. Have a great day.